All right. If you have your Bible, find Genesis chapter 8. We are continuing our series thinking through uh, the different covenants in, in Scripture. These are so important for us to understand for several reasons. I want to rehearse a couple of these. I felt like I was too jet-lagged and sleepy last night to give a proper introduction of my own to what we were thinking about. These covenants that we're going to be thinking about for the next few weeks are so important for us to understand for a number of reasons. One being, just to understand your Bible better. Just to understand, I mean, the Bible's a big book. 66 different books written by almost 40 different men from different cultural backgrounds, different languages. Over a period, this Bible was put together over a period of about 1,500 years. And that being thousands of years ago from right now. And so for many people, when they come to the Bible, uh, not only is it an ancient book to them, and it is an ancient book, but it feels disconnected. They might feel disconnected because it is so old. But then once they even start reading it, if they don't have any kind of framework by which to understand it, it may seem, the Bible to them may seem like a very disconnected book within itself. I mean, like, Genesis is drastically different than Revelation. And Proverbs is drastically different than the Gospel of John. So to some, the Bible may just seem like a random collection of really old books. But the more you read it, especially through the lens of the covenants that we're studying over these weeks... Um, you begin to realize that the Bible is not disconnected at all. I mean, it's, in fact, though it was written over many, many years by many different men and many years ago, um, it tells one overarching story um, from beginning to end. One overarching story. And that's because behind those uh, almost 40 different men who put pen to parchment, uh, stands one God speaking through them to tell one story. Um, and that story is linked together through these covenants. And, that's, and that, that's another reason why it's important to think through these covenants in Scripture because the story that it links together is the story of our salvation, the story of salvation from sin to begin with. Thinking through the, the covenants doesn't just help you understand the Bible, it helps you understand the God of the Bible and yourself, and, and the salvation that he has provided for sinners in Jesus Christ, because Jesus didn't just drop down out of the sky, drop from heaven with no warning, with no context, um, not at all. When, 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 when Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, the, the angels had announced to her and to Joseph that his birth was the fulfillment of promises made a long, long time ago. In fact, those promises go so far back and are so clear throughout the Old Testament that the Jews and even others outside the Jews, think about, think about the wise men uh, when Jesus was born, not Jews, but they were actively searching. They were actively looking for, for this one that was promised to come. They could see the promises. They could understand the promises and and they knew that he's got to come at some point. And so we're looking for him. Um, they knew something was coming. They knew someone was coming. In Luke 
chapter 2, for example, you read about the old man Simeon in, outside the temple in Jerusalem, waiting, praying that he might see with his own eyes the Savior that God had promised to come. And when, when Mary and Joseph brought uh, Jesus eight days old to the temple, you know, he, my eyes have seen, has seen the, the consolation of Israel. Or think about later, Jesus told his own disciples, Matthew 13, 17, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, many, think about what he's saying here, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The people knew that, that God was going to send a Savior and they were waiting and looking and and listening for him to come. How, how would they know? How would they recognize him when he came, though? Um, well, God had made a series of promises. God had made a series of covenants uh, that, uh, that collectively and progressively paint a very clear picture of who to expect. And these promises began way back uh, in, the, in the passage we actually considered last week. Um, and I haven't gone back to listen to the podcast. I'm not sure how clear I was last week. But... The first covenant God was a covenant that God made with all people down to this very day through the first man, Adam. Uh, it was based completely on what Adam did. It was based completely on his obedience, his works. Would he walk in obedience to the commands of God? Would he go his own way? And the stipulation of that first covenant, which we called the covenant of works or the covenant of creation because it was the covenant made with man at creation. The stipulation of that covenant was if Adam obeyed the command, um, he would have continued in that state of blessing, in that state of life with unbroken fellowship with God. But if he disobeyed, which he did, that fellowship would be broken not only for him, but for all his posterity, all, who, all people who would come after him. Um, and Adam died spiritually that day. Um, and all, Adam died spiritually in that day, and all his posterity, all who would come after him, would come into the world already in that state, already dead in their trespasses. and Well, not yet dead in their trespasses and sins. Dead, first of all, because of his sin. He was their representative in the garden. That's, gonna, that's an important point to remember. He was, he was our representative in the garden. And, and I think we mentioned this last week. If we, if before you think that that's unfair, that we come into the world dead and, and, and our fellowship broken with God, not because of our, our own sin, because we haven't even lived long enough as, a, as an infant to commit sin, but because of the sin of another and our representative, before we think that's unfair, just go read Romans 5. And another representative that we have. And, and to think that we could benefit from his righteousness, which is also not ours. Right? There's a reason that God, that we have a representative at the beginning. Because that's just painting us a picture of another representative, a better Adam that's coming. Well, but we come into the world already spiritually dead. Already separated from God. Outside of any hope. Again, that covenant with Adam, the covenant of works or creation... That, that covenant simply reveals to us our need for a Savior. That's where it has to begin, that we need a Savior. Because if left to ourselves, not only are we already guilty because of Adam's sin, and then as soon as we're 
old enough to commit sin, we're guilty for our own sins as well. But we, we're, we're corrupted. We're, we're corrupted that, we, that we, desire, we desire to please ourselves rather than God. We desire to go our own way rather than to go a way that God has told us to go. We desire to do more what we want to do than what God wants us to do, to love what we want to love, to prioritize what we want to prioritize. We're turned in on ourselves. And in so doing, we delight in ourselves rather than the one who gave us life and is worthy of our praise. And are by nature, as the Apostle Paul said, without hope and without God in the world. Well, and we would remain in that state if God did not have mercy on us. And, and he did. In the passage we, around the passage we looked at last week, in Genesis 3.15, after Adam had broken the first covenant of works, in the same breath in which God was announcing his judgment on Adam and on Eve and on the serpent, in the same breath he promised to send a Savior. Um, a redeemer who would win victory over Satan. He will crush your, he will, you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. Uh, Genesis 3.15. He would save his people from their sins. And it's from that, that, that Genesis 3.15 is called the, the Proto-Euangelion. It's the first gospel. The first announcement of the gospel in the Bible. Genesis 3.15. And it's from that moment on that that, that started the trajectory of looking listening, watching, waiting. Who is the Savior that's going to come? As time went on, though, the sin problem got worse, and our rebellion against God escalated. We can't and we don't improve ourselves. Unless God does it, it won't happen. So bad was it that we're told in Genesis 6, if you're, if you're open to Genesis 8, you can flip back to Genesis 6 there quickly. And, and in Genesis chapter 6, uh, look at um, verses 5 to 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord God regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord God said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. And again, just in case you're wondering, when he says I've regretted and I'm sorry, he's speaking in language, he's accommodating himself to our, our ways of understanding things. God is not a man, First Samuel tells us that he should have regret. So there you go. Um, but because he says right there, because of ever-increasing wickedness of man on earth, he said he would, he would and he did wipe out all mankind with a flood. Um, I remember, by the way, on about the, about the flood, we're not going to spend a lot of time uh, hashing out the, the flood narrative, but, I mean, we will because we're going to talk about Noah tonight. But um, I remember being a freshman at Auburn and being in, like, one of those early um, lit classes that you have to take. And, I, and, of course, they probably still make you, I don't know if you still make you read. I remember they made us read, like, Gilgamesh or something like that. And that was the first time, I mean, I was from, you know, Podunk, Alabama. I I didn't know who Gilgamesh was. Um, and there's this, there's this. I mean, there's a flood narrative. There's another ancient flood 
narrative in Gilgamesh. And there are many other flood narratives of the ancient world. And it was presented to me in that class as, see, the Bible's not unique. The Bible's not, I mean, the Bible's just one of many. It's no different than any of these others. And as, as an 18-year-old, I was like, um, I don't know what to say to that. But the older I've gotten, it's, been, it's become really clear to me, like, well, wait a minute. If all of these ancient peoples have a flood narrative, I'm thinking there was a flood. You know what I'm saying? And they're all talking about it. And, and, and the, 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 then you come to, like, okay, which one makes the best sense of what happened? Which one best accounts for why the flood uh, and, the, and Scripture far and away has the best explanation? Okay, anyway, uh, but he saved one man and his family. Who was that? That was, that was good old Noah, verse 8 of chapter 6. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's, that's Genesis 6, 8. We're going to say more about if you look down in verse 9, just another aside, down in verse 9 of chapter 6, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He walked with God. I want you to note the order of the verses of verse 8 and 9. It doesn't say, which one comes first, favor or righteousness? And favor comes first. It's not that Noah was a righteous man and he walked with God and therefore he, had, he found favor in the eyes of God. No, he found favor in the eyes of God. That's pure grace. That's free grace. And out of that favor and grace that God gave to Noah, he was a righteous man walking in the grace of God. But here you're introduced to Noah, this man who found favor and grace with God, and he's a righteous man, walked with God, and he, he was obeying uh, God's command to build an ark, and assume you, assuming that you started at the beginning of Genesis and assuming that you did not know any of this, all you knew was this. If that's all you knew, then you might begin to wonder, is Noah this one that was promised to come? Is Noah the Savior? Um, because we're told in chapter 6, verse 9, Noah walked with God. Do you remember, you're given a hint that in, Gen in Genesis 3, 8, that Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. Because it was after, their, after they had sinned, they were told God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and that's they hid themselves. But you're, you get the sense that God walking with them in the cool of the garden was a normal activity. Now you have Noah walking with God. On top of that, that, Noah's name. Noah means rest. His name means rest. And you wonder, is he the one who's going to give people rest from their sins? Um, well, in our, in our passage tonight, as we think about another covenant that God made, this time the covenant with Noah after the flood, you realize that Noah is not the Savior that was promised to come. But you also realize that God reaffirms His promise to send a Savior, and He promises to keep the world going day and night. Just keep things moving along. 
time and space. Keep it coming until the Savior has come and until all His church has been redeemed. This is a common grace covenant. Everyone will benefit. Everyone in the world will will benefit, believer or not. They will benefit from God's promise to keep day and night going for a time so that to give the time and the space for the Savior to come, for the promise to be fulfilled, and for the church to be redeemed. This covenant we're going to think about tonight provides that forum, the covenant with Noah. All right, so flip back over to Genesis 8. And uh, we'll be thinking about a passage that runs from chapter 8, verse 18, uh, through chapter 9, verse 17. Okay? So if you found that place in your Bible, follow along as I read aloud, beginning in 8, 18. So Noah went out. And his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark because he had taken pairs of every animal. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of, the, took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never again will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. They are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning From every beast I will require it from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall uh, his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, and increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So this is a very expansive covenant. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all be flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Oh God, this is your holy and inspired and inerrant 
sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And would you please give us clarity tonight to understand, to see the truth with our eyes and to understand it with our minds, to embrace the truth of your word in our hearts and to obey whatever admonition it calls upon us to obey. Give us all ears to hear, I pray, and give me help that I need to teach and to teach clearly, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this, this is another covenant that is still in effect today, just like, uh, just like the one uh, last week, the covenant of works. Not every covenant will be like that. Covenant with Abraham is not. Covenant with Moses is not. Covenant with David is not. So n- not all covenants are still in effect, but this one is. And there are a couple of things I want to note about it from this passage. And, and, and if you're taking notes, I just, I'm going to have two broad points. I think in this passage that we just read, first I want us to see the problem repeated. The problem repeated. Seeing that Noah is not the Savior. But our, our sin and our separation from God is still a problem with Noah. Just as it began with Adam. So first, the problem repeated. But secondly, the promise reaffirmed. The promise that God reaffirms the promise He made to Adam and to all of us in Genesis 3.15, and He confirms it with a sign that we still see today. So let's first begin by seeing the problem repeated. When we began reading this passage in chapter 8, verse 18, uh, we need to realize that it's right on the heels of the floodwaters subsiding. God had sent the flood to destroy every justly all mankind every living creature except for what was on the ark because of man's rebelliousness and godlessness and sin and we're told at the the last verse of chapter 7 that the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days Um, so when we began reading in chapter 8 verse 18 it was the first time that Noah was stepping off the, the boat back onto dry land in five months. And when you're reading this account in, in, in what we read just now, if you're paying careful attention, the language that you, you get here is, is, is intentionally similar to the story of Adam and Eve. Um, to give you this idea that this is a, a new beginning, there's a new creation. How? Because in 819... You have phrases that you, you should be familiar with if you're familiar with the creation story. The phrases like every beast, every creeping thing that moves on the earth, every bird. That sounds very much like, you know, day uh, five of creation week. And then he says in chapter 9, verse 2, that the fear of man and the dread of man would be in all the animals. That's just like... Genesis 1.28 told us in the creation story. And then in chapter 9, verse 1 and verse 7, you have the repeat of the command to be fruitful and multiply. But maybe most clearly of all, you have in chapter 9, verse 6, you have repeated just as it is in chapter 1, that man is made in in God's image. So over and over again, as Noah steps off the boat, it gives every indication that this is a new beginning. He's like a new Adam. And Noah enjoys many of the same privileges as Adam did. And he's given the same mandate in many ways that Adam had. And we've already seen that Noah walked with God. Why? Because he had found favor with God. But those hopes are quickly put to rest because if you're looking at chapter 8, 
toward the end of the chapter, even after, even after the flood subsided, it says in chapter 8, verse 21, that the intention, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So the flood did not do anything to wipe away sin. It wiped away sinners, but not sin. The flood was a judgment against sinners. Didn't atone for sin. Couldn't change a sinner's nature. Couldn't deliver from it. Even after the flood, we're still sinful and rebellious against God. And we see that, unfortunately, in Adam himself. In chapter 9, for example, we didn't read quite this far. But in chapter 9, verses 20 to 22, you see Noah getting so drunk that he passes out. And, his, and one of his sons sees him passed out and he, he's reveling in it, rejoicing in it, making fun of it, making light of it. And so in this whole deal, Noah and his family, even after the flood against sin, in, in this very first generation after that dreadful judgment, you see the problem repeated. Nothing had changed since Adam. Noah's not the Savior promised to come in Genesis 3. And I think, that's, I think it's pretty clear that, by the way, that, that before the flood, in, in chapter 6, verse 5, it says, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then after the flood, it's repeated again in chapter 8, verse 21. Essentially the same thing. The intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. It just goes to show you that without a Savior, we, we can't change ourselves. Like we Sin and, and, a, and a desire uh, to decide for ourselves what is right or wrong, or at least what is right or wrong for me, to be our own authority, to be independent from God is something that is ingrained in our hearts. I don't need anybody to be, I don't need to be taught that by anyone. None of my children did. From the moment we're born, that's the way we are. That's why God says. The, the new beginning with Noah revealed the old problem was still a rea- reality. It's a deep problem. It's a deep problem because it's not only destructive Sin is, sin is a problem not only because it's destructive. It's con- it, it's the consequences of sin are always, always farther reaching than you imagine that they will be. Just hear that again. The consequences of sin are always worse than you think they will be and farther reaching than you think they will be chiefly that it separates us from hell eternally in the end but it's not only a sin is not only a problem because it's destructive in that way it's even more so because it's deceptive sin is deceptive in us in that we convince ourselves that nothing is wrong or it's not that bad or it's we don't we don't want to believe we need a savior so the problem's repeated but just as god knew our problem He also remembers his promise. So he reaffirms his promise to Noah. So God had already promised, like we said, to send a Savior in Genesis 3.15. So God already knew who that Savior was going to be. He knew when that Savior would come. He knew that there would be thousands of years before Jesus would come. And that would require not only time, but the patience of a holy God with a rebellious and sinful and ungodly people. It's the character of God to be patient, though. Isn't that it? That's just rooted in his character. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and, and so, for example, 
Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God is patient. And because He's patient as well as faithful to His Word, He makes this covenant with Noah, and He reaffirms His promise to send the Savior. Twice in chapters 8 and 9, God gives the the promise of His covenant with Noah. Look first in chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. Knowing that man is still sinful and rebellious, God promises time and patience. When He says in, in chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And a little further down he says, Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that there is a day coming There is a day coming when this world will again be destroyed. We learn that in 2 Peter as well. So when God says in chapter 8 that He will never strike down every living creature as I have done, the key phrase in my estimation is, as I have done. Right? right? But how had He just done it? By a flood. Hence in chapter 9, if you're looking at chapter 9, He repeats the same promise but in a more specific way in chapter 9, verse 11, when he says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God will never destroy the world by a flood again. And going back to the promise of chapter 8, verse 22, the promise there is mainly that God would keep seed time and harvest cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, going until the Savior would come and until all the church is saved. It's it's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, 4, do you show contempt for for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? In the covenant with Noah, He's promising to keep time and opportunity going for people to repent, for people to put their trust in the Savior. If if we squander the time and the opportunity that God gives us with every passing day to turn away from ourselves, die to ourselves, repent of our sins, put our trust in the Savior, if we squander every opportunity we have, Paul says in Romans 2.5, in the very next verse, that's because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. The covenant with Noah promises time and opportunity to repent and believe. That's, 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 its, that's its goal. It's not flashy, but it's precious. It's a common grace covenant. It's a, it's a, it, why, why common grace? Because it's not grace only to those who will believe. It's, it's grace given to everybody Time and opportunity to repent and believe, which which adds to our guilt if we turn our backs to it. There's not a whole lot more to be said about this other than 
I mean, how many different ways can you say it? That's what he's promising, time and opportunity. But God gave a sign of his covenant promise. In chapter 9, verses 13 to 16, God says a rainbow in the sky is the sign of his promise. Notice specifically what he says in verses 15 and 16. He says, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you. And in verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature that is on the earth. So the rainbow, whenever you see a rainbow, it is not just to remember you of God's promise, but you can be sure that God is still remembering his promise. God is the one still. I will remember. I will see it. I will remember. God is remembering his gracious covenant to keep time and opportunity going. And notice also that the, well, unless you're reading the NIV, and I'm not faulting you if you are. It's the odd man out here, though. In every other, I think, English translation, and it, it, it's, every other is, 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 is right here, the word rainbow never appears. It just says bow. He says, I put, my, I put my bow in the cloud. It's the same Hebrew word as an archer's bow, like a bow and arrow. Um, why do you think that's the sign? Well, there's no way for us to know all the reasons why. Well, one, it's, it's what happens after a rain and water. But given that it's a representation of an archer's bow, and that's the, that's the God-ordained sign of the covenant, it's... It's not speculation to see significance in that. And if you imagine it as an archer's bow, imagine a rainbow, right? Imagine it as an archer's bow. Which direction is the arrow aiming? Toward heaven, right? It's as if it's pulled that way, toward heaven itself, right? And I believe that this sign, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see, I see significance in that for the same reason I'm going to see similar, no, not similar. I'm going to see the same significance just a few chapters later in the covenant with Abraham. More on that later in, in weeks to come. Uh, I believe this sign is showing God is promising this grace upon pain of his own life um, if he fails to keep his promise, which it is impossible for God to die. So he's going to keep his promise. Right, um, that God's grace, and I also believe it, it, it foreshadows that God's grace to us would come at his own cost. Where he would take his own wrath upon himself. This is a, I think this foreshadow will become even clearer, again, in the next covenant that we're going to study, the covenant with Abraham. But God is a covenant-keeping God. And for, the, for thousands of years, he has kept this gracious covenant to provide the time not only for the Savior to come in Jesus Christ, but also the time for us to hear of that gospel message of that Savior, as well as time for us to take that gospel of salvation to places in the world where they have never heard, so that all can hear and respond. God has promised time, and He has given time, but He's also promised a day will come when seed time and harvest and day and night 
will cease. And everyone will be held accountable in that day. So right after Peter said in 2 Peter that with one day, with God one day is a, th- is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day, he's patient, not wishing any to come to, uh, to perish but to come to repentance. He also said that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Every passing day is an opportunity for um, believers to bear witness for unbelievers to hear and respond. And the, the covenant with Noah is a covenant basically that exhorts us. It, it assures us that God is patient, but it exhorts us to make the most of the time. If, 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 if time and opportunity, time itself and opportunity is rooted in a gracious covenant gift of God, then time is precious. And, it, and, it, and it's something that we are exhorted to use wisely and not to squander um so the covenant with noah exhorts us to fix our eyes on christ to keep our eyes fixed on him the one for whom god kept time going and for us to make the most of the days he gives us and i pray that he would find us faithful let's pray oh god i I thank you for these covenants the these early covenants are so um beautifully simple uh, Lord, as, as we get into the later covenants, as we get into the covenant with Abraham, as we get into the covenant with Moses or through Moses, we get in the covenant with David, they are, going to, they are going to increase in specificity. They're going to become even more clearer in their foreshadowing of the Savior who was to come. But in order to do that, they're going to get a little more complicated They're going to have a lot more to unpack when we get to them. And these these first two covenants, though, are essential. Thank you for the simplicity of their messages. The first one, that we have have gone our own way. We have broken your law. We need a Savior. You promised a Savior. In this covenant with Noah, you assure us of your patience to give us time for that Savior to come and for all the church to be redeemed. How simple and beautiful. I pray that I pray that if there's anybody here tonight that has heard this message and, 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 and for the first time needs to give their life to Christ and and, and wisely use this gift of time and opportunity in that way. I pray that they might come find me or Sophie or Riley or someone uh, after this service is over and say, can you help me um, give my life to Christ and tell me how to do that. And I pray that uh, the rest of us, if we're believers here, that we would, first of all, thank you for the time and opportunity that you gave us to hear of the Savior to put our faith in Him. And I pray that we would make the most of the days that You give us for You to make the Savior known through our lives and our witness to those who need to hear and believe. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.